Turn to Psalm 110. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. This is the third time that we've looked at this important psalm that David wrote. And I say it's important because it's quoted more than any other psalm in the New Testament. It's clearly a messianic psalm giving us a glimpse into the coming Messiah, what he'd be like, some of his characteristics, what he'd do. A glimpse um, really a thousand years before Christ came. So let's just read through it one more time here and then we'll talk about it some the Lord says to my Lord sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet the Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion saying rule in the midst of thine enemies thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power in holy array from the womb of the dawn, thy youth are to thee as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at thy right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Well, may the Lord help us to understand what's being presented in these seven amazing verses. Um, Just a little review here. In verses 1 through 3, we see one who the king of Israel, David, calls his Lord. So David is calling this one his Lord, and this one is sitting at the right hand of God. God himself assigns him this position until he has subdued all his enemies. We also see a people in holy array who volunteer freely to be part of this Lord's army. They are there to rule in the midst of thine enemy, help him to rule in the midst of his enemies. So, we're told that these people are like the dew of the morning. Pure, this is what I think of anyway, pure and fresh and radiant in the light of the dawn, as you think of uh, uh, the dew on the grass as the sun's coming up and they catch the rays of the sun. I take this to be a symbol of the church throughout the centuries. Uh, Something that's many, there's many little drops of dew, and they're marvelous, they're beautiful, and they're reflecting something of the light of Christ. That's what every Christian does. Reflects something of the light of Christ. Now, 
when I say many and marvelous and beautiful, that's not how we usually view ourselves, and it's probably right that we don't. But this is God's view of us. This, as you see there at the end of verse 3, thy youth are to thee as the dew. This is the way God sees us, because God sees us in Christ and what, he, what He's doing in our lives through Christ. So, uh, we learn from this first section that the coming Messiah will be a sovereign ruler sitting at God's right hand and will have an army of willing followers that will help him to extend his rule. That's the first three verses. But as we move into the next section, verses 4 through 7, we see that this great king will also be a priest. This one that's ruling will also be a priest, something that was forbidden in the Old Testament law of Moses. There you couldn't be a priest and a king at the same time. But as we saw last time, his was a special priesthood with a different background than the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. Totally different. He was a priest that was in a different line, a different genealogy than the Levitical priesthood. His priesthood actually predated the Levitical priesthood by 500 years, or more than 500 years. So how, how are we to understand this? Well, it's a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, as you see in verse 4. Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We looked at this, uh, this man, Melchizedek, last time, and we saw something of the radical implications of this teaching. Um, we won't go back into that, but it's explained for us in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, especially in chapter 7. The fact that the Messiah was to be a high priest forever according to the order of, the, of Melchizedek helps us to see the inadequacy, and this is what the writer of Hebrews brings out, the inadequacy and the temporary nature of that other priesthood and really the whole Old Covenant. Let me just read you a few verses here. <clears throat> you don't need to turn to them. Let me just, this is just skipping around a little bit in the book of Hebrews chapter 7. For when the priesthood is changed of, of necessity, there takes place a change of the law also. also. And then a little bit later. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. He's talking about what Christ has done for us. Through which we draw near to God. And then a little bit later, Jesus, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore... He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. So, really, you need to read all of chapter 7 to see the radical nature of what is being taught from this uh, realization that Christ was of the, the priesthood of Melchizedek, not of the uh, Levitical priesthood. Um, so, anyway, we covered that in more detail last time. Um, really, I think one of our problems with dealing with, with this uh, section here of the psalm 
is that we don't think in terms of needing a priest anymore. We just don't think about priests that much. It seems kind of Jewish or maybe, maybe a little Roman Catholic in a more uh, contemporary setting. But the fact is we do very much need a priest because we need to have our sins propitiated. God does not just forgive sins. He provides a sufficient sacrifice so that they are canceled out. The sin penalty is paid in full by the one and only true high priest. We have to have a priest or our sins are not going to be taken care of. And they are they're taken care of in full by the one and only true high priest, God's own son, who is both a priest and the sacrifice that's offered. God's wrath, his anger against sin has been appeased and removed by the ultimate sacrifice. Propitiation has been made by the Lamb of God. Um, so we, even though we don't think about priests that much anymore, it's vital that we understand what, what was uh, being taught here, that Christ was of his own particular priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek, and how radical it is to set aside all that other um, Old Testament priesthood. First um, John 4.10 In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So really, I mean, one way of thinking about it is there's just two positions for people to be in either under the just and holy wrath of God because of sin or under the smile of God because sin has been propitiated through Christ, our merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. It's, if, we, if we did not have this priest, there would be no way of drawing near to God. He is the one who makes it so that we can draw near to God and it's through Him. For those who trust in Him, you never need to try to appease an angry God because that's been done once and forever through Christ on the cross. And He ever lives, we're told there again in Hebrews, He ever lives to make intercession for us as our eternal high priest. Well, that brings us then to the final section of Psalm 110, um, verses 5 through 7. And this is an important part of the psalm. We dare not skip over this. <clears throat> we, we talked about the propitiation that Christ has provided, our high priest has provided but what of those proud people who will not trust God but trust in themselves and go on sinning? Those that are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness. What about those? Well, we're told here, let's just read this section. The Lord is at thy right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. 
he who would have been their royal priest is here pictured as their judge and executioner. Now, to me, the way to get more of a feel for this is just to consider the great contrast between verse 3 and what's presented here. In one, you have a people that volunteer freely in the day of his power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Remember the picture that I've tried to paint just of a beautiful meadow that's glistening uh, in the sunlight in the dew of the morning. Uh, A people who volunteer freely to serve their king. But here, the countryside is filled with corpses. Quite a contrast. The king, the kings of the earth, the chief men are shattered in the day of God's wrath. When I think of the picture that's presented here, I think of some things, some pictures that I've seen uh, of the aftermath of some of the battles in the Civil War, where you see these fields just covered with with dead bodies. Um, it's uh, it's a terrible thing to look at. Shattered bodies, uh, fields filled with corpses. Well, that's the picture that's presented for us here of those who would not bow to this king, this priest, that's being presented here in this psalm. The last verses here of the psalm refer to the future victory of this messianic priest-king. We've looked somewhat at what's happened in the past and what's going on right now, but here this is a future picture of God's victory over his enemies. Now, uh, I have to say that it's kind of hard to figure out who the he is um, in verses 5 and 6. You don't know if it's Jehovah or the Messiah. And I kind of go back and forth on this. I don't really know for sure, but I will say this. I don't think it's really important whether we're talking about Jehovah or the Messiah here because they're so closely associated in the work that they're uh, doing, the work of judging the nations, that it matters very little which of the two is referred to. Both work hand in hand in this task of overcoming God's foes. So... Um, I think you could uh, justly take it either way and not be too too far off. What I do want to point out here is that this is talking about the day of God's wrath. You see that very clearly in uh, the latter part of verse 5. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. It's not simply saying he will strike through or shatter kings in his wrath. He's talking about a specific time. He will do this in the day of his wrath. Now here's what Spurgeon says on this. I just thought I'd quote this to you. In the latter days, we will look for terrible conflicts and for final victory. As there is a time of grace and patience, so there is also an appointed time of wrath and vengeance of God. 
terrible things in righteousness will be seen ere the history of this world comes to an end. In the last days, all the kingdoms of the earth shall be overcome by the kingdom of heaven, and those who dare oppose shall meet with swift and overwhelming ruin. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. This need not be understood literally, but as a poetic description of the overthrow of all rebellious powers and the defeat of all unholy principles and people. It's good to remember that the reason that we're not seeing this right now, the reason for the delay in the Messiah's return is not any kind of apathy or indifference or disinterest on his part, but rather it's mercy. God is giving men time to repent and turn in faith to the Messiah as their Savior rather than to face Him as their wrathful King and Priest. Well, um, even though it's brief, the description given here is not a very pleasant one. Shattering of kings, filling Uh, the nations with corpses shattering the chief men in a broad country. It's not a pleasant one, but it is actually one that is frequently brought up in the Bible. Let me just give you a a few examples, two from the Old Testament and two from the New Testament. Isaiah 34, 2. For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations and his wrath against all their armies. He has utterly, utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter. So their slain will be thrown out, and their corpses will give off their stench, and the mountains will be drenched in their blood. This is, this is in the Bible. This is what it's going to be like. Again, we may not be talking here necessarily literally, but a poetic picture of the devastation that's going to be wrought upon those who turn from God. Um, Isaiah sixty-six twenty-four. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be in abhorrence to all mankind. And then if you turn into the New Testament, especially the book of Revelation, you see this same picture coming out. Revelation 6, 14. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand. And then if you skip on to Revelation 19.15, it says, And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name, King of kings and Lord of lords. 
Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds who fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God. This is not the married supper of the Lamb. This is the, it's called the great supper of God. He's speaking to these birds, So that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, the small and great. In other words, it's a picture of the corpses here being eaten by the birds. Again, uh, not necessarily a literal description, but a very frightening and frightful description of the devastation that's going to come uh, in God's wrath against sin. There is a coming day, a great and terrible day, when those with stubborn and unrepentant hearts have stored up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So, this is very much part of this psalm, this messianic psalm. We have to see what you might call the end game of the Messiah. Now, I think maybe it would be good to just say a word concerning the wrath of God and the love of God. Um, they're not incompatible. Uh, in our day and age, we uh, tend to hear so much about the love of God, and then when we hear about the wrath of God, we think something must be amiss, something doesn't fit, but they are not incompatible. We're tempted to think that a loving God could not be wrathful. The truth is God could not be loving unless He is he was angry at sin and angry at sinners for their sin. God is wrathful because He's loving. Now that one is something that you have to think about. Charles has brought this out in his messages out of Romans, but I, it's, it's worth pondering. God is wrathful because He is loving. God's love is a holy love. To not be wrathful at the sight of this world's evil would not be loving, it would be evil. For example, if you love little children, you'll hate child sacrifice. You'll hate child abuse. If you love your neighbor, you'll hate murder. You'll hate slander. If you love God, you'll hate blasphemy and idolatry. We have to realize that a love that does not contain hatred of evil is not the kind of love the Bible speaks about. Without His wrath, God is simply not loving in the sense that the Bible portrays love. Now here's, here's another way of saying that, and you have to kind of follow the steps here. Lack of wrath against wickedness is a lack of caring, which is a lack of love. Lack of wrath against wickedness is a lack of caring. If I care about you, if I have a love for you, I'm going to hate what would destroy you. God's wrath is His revulsion to evil 
and all that opposes his loving lordship. It is his passionate, we're talking about his wrath, his passionate resistance to every will that is set against his pure and holy will for his creation. God is angry because sin corrupts the world he made and cares about. He's angry because sin warps the way people see him. He's angry because the son he loves and sent to die for sinners is rejected and despised. He's angry because sin is an affront to his loving, holy character. He's angry with sinful people because sin is evil and deserves to be punished. So I say all that just to say again, God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. He's wrathful because he is love. He will, in the day of his wrath, shatter all rebellion so that there can be and will be a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells and there will be peace there. There could be no peace apart from God having this day of wrath. And that's what's then brought up in this last verse. It says, He will drink from the brook by the wayside. I think this is certainly talking about the Messiah here. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. There will be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwell. There will be peace there. And he will lift up his head. The Messiah will lift up his head in triumph as a victor over all evil. So, that's kind of a brief presentation of what's there in those last verses. And I would say this, that we can relate to this Messiah in one of two ways, both of which are suggested here in this psalm. We can relate to the Messiah as an enemy or a friend. We can reject the claim of Jesus to be the Messianic King Priest, our Lord and Savior. If such is the case, this great priest king will relate to us as God's avenger. He will come and shatter his foes. But for those who come to trust in Jesus as their king and priest and who willingly follow him, they'll find him no longer an adversary but a gracious advocate and a sympathizing friend. In the book of Hebrews, the writer says it this way, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot, be, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. An enemy or a friend. One last thing I want to point out from this latter section here. Don't think that this shattering that's spoken of applies only to kings and the chief men of the world. 
even though that's the way it's stated here, it applies to all of us. Their problem, the kings and the chief men of the world, their problem is our problem, thinking we can rule our own little kingdom. That's the big problem. Tozer put it this way in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. The natural man is a sinner because and only because he challenges God's selfhood in relation to his own. In all else, he may willingly accept the sovereignty of God, but in his own life he rejects it. For him, God's domain ends where his begins. He is willing to share himself, sometimes even to sacrifice himself for a desired end, but never to dethrone himself. No matter how far down the scale of social acceptance he may slide, he is still in his own eyes a king on a throne, and no one, not even God, can take that throne from him. That's the kind of person that's going to be shattered in, God, in this day of wrath that we're talking about. To set our will against the will of God is to dethrone God, or at least to try to, to dethrone God and make ourselves supreme in the little kingdom of, of man's soul. Got that from Bunyan. This is sin at its evil root. So we shouldn't pass this section off to some other people. It applies to everyone who wants to reign supreme in that kingdom of man's soul. If that basic attitude is the characteristic of my life, your life, our life, then we shall end up like the kings and chief men of this psalm, shattered corpses. But by the grace of God, we may instead be of those who volunteer freely in the day of God's power. If we look to Him and ask Him to change us and take out that heart of stone, that heart of selfishness, that heart of rebellion. Well, there's much to contemplate in this short psalm, the psalm that's quoted more than any other one in the New Testament. May God help us to see these things and make them real to us as we think through what's presented here in this psalm of David. <clears throat>